It's also something that Jane Harper speaks to in her TED Talk, Creativity in Your Control. And I think every aspiring author should listen to this TED Talk. I think it's only about eight minutes. But the substance of that is that as writers, we are powerless over pretty much everything on the journey. We're powerless over whether we'll get an agent, powerless over whether we'll get a publisher, powerless over whether the book will be published. We're powerless over whether people will buy it. We're powerless over whether people will like it or whether they won't like it. But what we're not powerless over is delivering the best possible product to the market that we can. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast. So please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello everyone, my name is Laura Boone and I'm one of the guest hosts for Rights for Women. Today I have the great pleasure of talking to Lynn Johnson about her debut novel, which is a crime thriller called The Bait Trap. A few words about my background and how I came to know Pamela Cook, the brains behind Rights Women. Before we start, I am part of a writing group, The Inkwell, and I'm the author of four books, two romances, and two non-fiction books about the publishing industry, the re- most recent of which is Tips from an Industry Insider, which draws on my 30 years of experience in the publishing industry to advise aspiring and emerging authors on what really goes on behind the doors of the publishing house. I'm also an editor which is how I came to meet Lynn when she approached me to do a copy edit on the bait track. At first reading, I was blown away by the insight from several of her characters into the nature of addiction, which is a strong sub-theme in her novel. I knew then that I wanted to interview her for rights for them. Lynn, welcome and congratulations. We're chatting on 4 December, which is the official release date for the bait track. Although I know the formal launch is not until next week on the 14th at Better Read Than Dead in Newtown. Thanks so much, Laura. It's so lovely to be here. And yes, it's very exciting to be here on my publication day. Yeah, it's fantastic. It doesn't always work out that well, the timing. But Lynn, can you please give us a short summary of the bait trap store? So the bait trap is written in the crime, suspense and thriller genre. It's set in 2021 in a fictional town called Coinda, which is in the Riverina district. And it's set in the middle of a mouse plague. Also, bushfires have featured in the recent past too. The locals of the town are deeply divided over a coal seam gas mine and the Judd family secrets are simmering beneath the surface. The book opens on, on page one or, and there's a murder. And we learn that John Judd has gone missing after failing to return from harvesting one day. 
Judd is a, he's a farmer, he's a much-loved husband, father, and he's a bit of a community icon. He's not too good to be true, but almost. Then the action switches to a rehab centre in Sydney where Detective Zach Byrne has gone, ostensibly to address his alcoholism, but really to get his wife Jenny off his back. Jenny visits him in the rehab centre. She tells him that marriage is over. And then two days later, Byrne learns that his career has been put on ice as a result of a raid that went terribly wrong. He's then put on what you could describe as light duties when he's given the brief to go to Coinda to find out what happened to John Judd. So Byrne rolls into town. He partners up with the local cop, Marco Bozik, He's a little bit too relaxed and trusting for Byrne, and the pair are determined to find out what happened to John Judd, but the locals seem determined to keep the truth from Byrne. Byrne then discovers that Judd isn't quite the clean skin that everyone thought he was. He had a hidden bush cabin that might hold all the answers if they could only find it. And there are two subplots in the book. What Byrne doesn't expect when he rolls into town is to meet Judd's daughter, Thea, at the local Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. She's a recovering alcoholic as well, and they fall in love there. Then Byrne's feelings for Thea and his professional obligations collide. The second subplot also deals with Byrne and his relationship with his teenage daughter, Skye, who's an influencer. And she gets herself into some hot water when she's posting for some near-nude photos on the internet. And Byrne wants to warn her about cyber safety, but he can't reach her because they're estranged as a result of his alcoholism. That's an excellent summary. Thanks, Lynn. And that's really just the starting point and everything goes from there. Do you have an extract you can read to give us a flavour of the bait trap? I do. I might read prologue. Okay. I know that prologues are a bit controversial, but I think it is, it serves sort of, it's, it's good material to put in a prologue because it's, it really piques your interest. So this art meeting is Coinda, New South Wales, Australia, and it's Friday the 26th of November 2021 at quarter to six. The outsider watched as John Judd stood at the cabin door, surveying the flint grey sky, as impervious as a tulip to his face. Judd patted his trouser pocket to check for his keys and snuffed out the light in the cabin. A languorous smoke trail crept into his nostrils. Judd's footsteps were getting louder and louder, rising in sympathy with the footsteps was his humming. As he trudged over the scar on the landscape, Judd's steps skimmed the top of the leaf litter. There was another set of steps, lighter, like hesitant taps on the forearm of a stranger. He was so taut, so focused on Judd in the half-beat before his arrival, he thought he'd combust. Judd's profile was level with the trunk that was his cover. This secret turtleneck jumper and geeky spit-wearing phony needed to be taken out once and for all. Thwack. His backswing came down heavily at the base of Judd's neck. He heard the throaty bark of the dog. 
What the judge said, his hands were black spider and cutouts as he reached blindly into the night. Oomph! It looked like pounding meat with a mallet. Judd's legs bowed gracefully like he did at mass, his face planted in the leaves. The outsider swung again, another dull thud on Judd. His mobile went skidding across the parched earth. He sunk his boot into the dog's bird-like ribs. When he'd entered the forest only an hour earlier, ancient ironbark trees had sagged and groaned. Ripped trunks had stood proud, cloaked in a sinister shawl of mist. Now evening was falling, and lumpen storm clouds were amassing overhead. The wolf call of a barking owl echoed through the night air like a warning siren, and a cacophony of bird life shot up as if someone had fired a gun. Later he waited until he heard the feral pigs squealing, then moved aside. Their rotund bodies panic round each other for the prize of fresh meat. The fading light was no impediment. Their quivering snouts guided them to their second dinner. The larger ones greedily barred the weaker ones from partaking in their fair share. Virtually all that was left were the bones. Liquid cooled on scorched ochre like a rich claret on a raw linen carpet. Tails twitching, the pigs bore witness as the remains were doused with petrol. The lighter clicked and flames danced in the night air. But would the heat be fierce enough to erase all traces of him? Such a chilling beginning to the novel, Lynn. I get goosebumps just hearing it again. So, yes, we're going to have to find out who the mysterious outsider is and why he picked on poor John Judd. Or maybe not poor John Judd. We'll find out. So we're going to talk about the bait tap in some detail, but first I'd like to backtrack a little bit. I'm always fascinated by authors' origin stories. Were you a reader or a writer first? And what led you to deciding to write your first book? I always loved stories. I was the child who spent my lunch hours in the library, who always got to school early so I could go to the library. I was obsessed as a child with books like Little Women and Little House on the Prairie, anything with little in it, basically. And then later in life, I became obsessed with Jane Austen and the Brontes and Dickens. But when I left school, I didn't think that being a writer was a thing. There were certainly no creative writing degrees, and I had this stereotypical notion that writers were people who eked out an existence in a garret. So I chose law and I found my natural resting place as a copyright lawyer, which is the closest thing I could find to being a writer without being a writer. But I was always drawn to the storytelling aspect of law. So I linger far too long over witnesses' affidavits, particularly the front end of the affidavit, trying to work out what witnesses' stories were in their evidence. And I just loved interviewing the witnesses. I'd say, so the day you walked into the opponent's office, you sat down, what was in the background in his office? 
Oh, okay. A row of binders. Interesting. And what was on the spine of the binders? Potential income streams. Good. Okay. So ways to gouge money out of your company. <laughs> and I would just be titillated by details like that. I've always eavesdropped on conversations and I put those conversations in the notes section of my phone. I've always been a keen observer of behaviour in conferences, in court, in cafes, on buses. I spent a bit of last week listening to the Bruce Lerman and Channel 10 Network hearing in the federal court in Sydney, which is being live streamed on YouTube. And it really is a study in human behaviour. You've got the judge asking Brittany Higgins questions and she is desperately trying to apprise the judge of her position. And then you look at all the people in the gallery and Bruce Lerman isolated in one corner and the rest of the people in a clump. And I, yeah, I just love observing like gatherings of people. It's an awkward characteristic, I think, that we like to eavesdrop. <laughs> on conversations and observe people. It is. And like one of my eldest sons will say, if I'm out and about with him, he'll say, Mum, stop it. <laughs> and if you're doing it again, I'll say, what? He'll say, you're staring at that couple. It's bordering on rude. No, if you're a writer, that's what you do. People have to get used to us. That's right. As to how I became a writer, I guess in 2021, a few events coalesced. The job that I had been in for 19 years as a government copyright lawyer, that ceased to exist. All the juicy copyright litigation and advice and transactional work had been progressively drying up. We became empty nesters as our last son went off to university. We were also in the throes of the pandemic. I resigned from my job. And I thought to myself, what do I want to spend the rest of my life doing? Do I want to be doing timesheets and catering to clients and deadlines, or do I want to write a book? And I felt like the universe spoke to me. So I did a few creative writing online courses at the Australian Writers' Centre, um, and I sat down to write The Bait Trap in June of 2021. Wow, that's amazing. It's really quite a short period from two publications. I have to say, I'm very impressed. Thank and you. I'm curious about what made you choose the crime genre because obviously crime wasn't always your go-to reading material from what you've talked about. So have you become a crime reader in recent years or are you more of just a crime writer? I read widely across genres. I read a lot of literary fiction, crime and contemporary women's fiction. I love crime. I love listening to confessions of psychopaths like Jeffrey Dahmer. I love listening to true crime like Gary Jubilant's I Catch Killers. I love watching police procedurals like Broadchurch. I love Outback Noir, Scandi Noir, anything noir. So I, I guess I found my net resting place in yeah. crime fiction. But what struck me was that a lot of detective fiction had different iterations of the alcoholic detective like Sam Spade and Maltese Falcon and Stephen Villani and Truth and then there's all those cop shows in the 60s and 70s that I was glued to. 
but I couldn't find a, a story that authentically portrayed an alcoholic detective in recovery who had faced his alcoholism, swallowed huge chunks of truth, forgiveness, and been redeemed and experienced freedom as a result of that forgiveness. So I thought I'd write one. I thought I'd make, I'd create an, like an anti-alpha male detective. And so I did in that burn. That's fantastic. And I think you're right. The alcoholic detective is almost an overused trope in crime fiction, although it makes perfect sense to me that somebody who faced so much horror on a daily basis would need some kind of crutch or find it very easy to come to depend on some kind of a crutch. So let's examine that a little bit further. So what was your um, inspiration, perhaps your personal inspiration, for making Zach Byrne a recovering alcoholic and for also making Thea Judd a recovering alcoholic? They're in different parts of their journeys, but I'd really like to know what inspired it and what you'd like readers to take away from that. Almost everyone's life um, in Australia has been touched by people who drink too much. Alcohol is a major cause of illness and death in Australia. I do a lot of work now in correctional facilities and alcoholism and other addictions are certainly a significant factor in people reoffending and returning to prison. And I guess for me, when I'm writing, character always comes first and then character informs and shapes the plot. So I started very much with the two protagonists that learned the alcoholic detective and his love interest, Thea Judd, who's the boozy lawyer. Um, and I started with those two characters and in a sense, their journey is a conversation with myself about what it means to be an active alcoholic and then a recovering alcoholic in Australia and how Australians interact with alcoholics. But I thought that a book dealing with the R word, recovery, would be a hard sell. But if it's screen crime thriller, I thought that readers might give it a go. And what better place than crime fiction to explore what it means to be alcoholic? Because as you said before, Laura, it's littered with the trope of the heavy drinking detective. And there's nothing new about using commercial fiction as a vehicle to examine societal issues. No one does this better than Jane Austen, who's my idol. And she explored family dysfunction and wealth and social class and things not being quite what they seem. And of course, pride and prejudice through popular fiction of her day. When you read her books, readers are very rarely ever told what clothes her characters are wearing or what furniture they're sitting on, unless she herself is making a statement about their social class or character. Yes, and there, there is that amazing scene in the bait trap where Byrne first goes into the local pub and he's asked what he wants to drink. And there are not a lot of people in there, but when he asks for something soft, it's like that sort of classic situation where you can hear a pin drop 
And then everybody's got something to say about it. My dad told me you should never trust a man who doesn't drink and all those kind of societal stereotypes we have when in actual fact, probably, realistically, it would be better to trust someone who didn't drink and not trust someone who does drink. <laughs> exactly. And uh, it's a case of in, in Australia, you're damned if you do drink and you're damned if you don't. Yes. Because that scene where, where Burn walks into the pub and he asks for something soft to drink, that actually happened to me when I first gave up drinking. The struggles of Burn and Sea are very much influenced by my own struggles with alcoholism. And I remember in early days of sobriety, I was out with my colleagues and we were celebrating the end of a very big piece of litigation that had gone on for over 10 years. And we were at lunch and people said, oh, Lynn, what are you having to drink? And I said, I don't drink. And it, the place was pin drop quiet. And they said, now, hang on a minute. All conversations ceased. They said, now, we really need to know why you're not drinking. And I have a variety of responses for, to suit the situation. But I just said, look, there's a lot of alcoholics in my family tree. You shake the tree and a lot of them fall out. And I've just made the decision not to. And it, yeah, it was, I don't know how many times I've been told, you can't trust the person who doesn't drink. <laughs> it's amazing. We wouldn't have that or don't have that response to someone who says, oh, I don't drink tea. Nobody says, why not? Don't you like it? Or I don't watch tennis. It's boring. That's just okay. That's a personal choice. But alcohol and attitudes to it are really wrapped up so tight, I think, particularly in Anglo-Western culture. I remember Marion Tees telling a story about her recovery when she stopped drinking and she went out with a friend and the friend said, now, what are you going to have to drink? And Marion said, no, I don't drink anymore. It will literally kill me. And her friend said, yes, but surely a glass of wine would be okay, as if there's no alcohol in wine. And it's funny on the one hand, but on the other, it's really tragic because it makes it so hard for people to stop drinking if alcohol is bad for them. Yes, that's exactly right. The consumption of alcohol is so ingrained in the Australian psyche. Our diggers were given alcohol in the trenches and will one. And uh, as soon as our kids turn 18, they're taken to the park because it's a rite of passage. And during the pandemic, social media was awash with people celebrating the end of the day and working from home or homeschooling with a quick picture of their glass of wine. And that's okay for people who can control their drinking, but I never could. So in a sense, I feel like I didn't so much create this book. It was there for me to unravel and discover because I think it's a conversation that Australia really needs to have about alcoholism and Australians' relationship with alcoholism. And I'm just hoping it will go some way to destigmatize alcoholics in recovery and also those who choose not to drink. One of the things I liked about the bait trap was that it can be stereotypical, despite having the heavy drinking detectors, to also have 
the criminals in the story to be to have their actions informed by various forms of addiction or abuse. And certainly the villain of your story does have something of a tragic past, but it's not drug and alcohol related. And I thought that was interesting and a good point to make. Yes, I did a lot of research on the making of Murderer and without giving away too many spoilers, what is that leads someone to dismember body, to cut someone up. And they're obviously psychopaths who do that, but there's the organised sort of psychopaths and then there's the disorganised. So it's very much bifurcated. And a lot of psychopaths live amongst us. They're functioning members of our society. Often they're CEOs of companies. You're sitting next to them on the bus. They hold down jobs, they have driver's licences, they command huge sums of money. But in terms of people who dismember bodies, there's always a background of trauma that have enraged them so much that they they need to go the extra mile and not just kill someone but cut them up. And that concept of going overboard is called overkill, yeah, in terms of psychopathy. Wow. So, yeah, I love, I really love the researching part of the book, particularly what it is that makes a murderer. Maybe that's a good time to talk about research. So you've talked about a lot of the research you've done into human psychology and how that impacts us. But a crime novel requires a knowledge of modern policing. And I really got a nice feel for that through the writing of The Bait Trap. Even though it's a small rural investigation, as time requires, Byrne brings in a forensics expert. He brings in someone that's a technical fundy and can decipher computers that have been deleted and all sorts of things. And I wondered what it was or how you researched that, even to the point of understanding internal resources they have, like I ask and MobiPol and so on. Yeah. I like, I. I use the skills that I had as a lawyer and I use them in the writing of this book. So in the same way that if you were so running a piece of litigation, you would find the subject matter experts that you needed to give the case the best possible chance of success. For example, you would get an economist to advise your client how much they could hope to get in damages or account of profits. You would retain a barrister to present your case in the best possible light to the judge. So in the same way, I found someone to advise me on the police procedural aspects of the book. I actually found her on, again, on the Australian Writers' Centre Creative Writing Graduates Facebook page. Her name's Melanie Cage, and she's a gutsy, big-hearted, former sergeant, police prosecutor and crime scene officer. And when I met with her for the first time, I went with a list of questions in my manuscript and we sat down and I asked her all the questions. And there was really no substitute for speaking to an expert in that way. There are just things you cannot glean from Googling or from desk research. For example, when I asked her, how did you get into the police force and what year was that? And she said, I entered the force in 1997 and I was lucky and I was the last year 
to do a written test and a face-to-face interview. And the physical comprised of running around the Surrey Hills police station car park, not the gruelling physical that I should imagine you would do in Goulburn. And those sort of details are what Al Alvarez calls specificity. Yes. And I think Kate Forsyth also discusses specificity a lot. And that goes to the author's voice. And it's the minutest details that make the reader have an intense experience. And it allows them to suspend disbelief mm. and really believe what the, they're reading is factual. Now, let's talk about storytelling. I know because we've spoken about it before that you believe we all have a view of our lives, a narrative that we tell ourselves. And certainly this is something that drives the actions of Zach and Sia in their story. Do you think that narrative changes for someone who is an alcoholic or an addict from when they're in addiction and when they go into recovery? I do. Certainly the narrative that Bern and Sia have while they're in active alcoholism is I'm a victim. They see the world very much in black and white way. They're unable to live life on life's terms. They're unable to feel their feelings without drinking them down. And they think, if only everyone would do as I say, then the world would be a better place. But by the end of the book, I would like to think that they had undergone some transformation as characters. And they're, they've progressed down the path of recovery because by that stage, um, they are less likely to see the world in a black and white way. They are able to feel their feelings without drinking them down and using other maladaptive tools. They're able to hold on to life with an open hand and live life on life's terms. And they also accept that not only were they powerless over their alcoholism, but they're powerless over pretty much everything else in their lives. And certainly for me in recovery, accepting powerlessness was a really big thing. I had to accept that I'm pretty much powerless over most things in my life. So the things over which I'm not powerless, then I need to concentrate on I'm doing the best job I can with those things. And this is something that's really pertinent to writing a book, this issue of powerlessness. And it's also something that Jane Harper speaks to in her TED Talk, Creativity in Your Control. And I think every aspiring author should listen to this TED Talk. I think it's only about eight minutes. But the substance of that is that as writers, we are powerless over Pretty much everything on the journey. We're powerless over whether we'll get an agent, powerless over whether we'll get a publisher, powerless over whether the book will be published. We're powerless over whether people will buy it. We're powerless over whether people will like it or whether they won't like it. But what we're not powerless over is delivering the best possible product to the market that we can. 
And for me, that looks having the technical skills, reading the craft books, doing the online courses, engaging the relevant subject matter experts that you need, like the police officer, the experts on agronomist issues, guns, IT, spyware. We're not powerless over that. We can inform ourselves in that respect. Get it. We're not powerless over getting the book properly edited. We're not powerless over having an enticing cover. So for me, I concentrated on delivering the best possible work product that I could to the market and not thinking about whether it will be a New York Times bestseller, whether there'll be movie rights, all those other things, because that's not helpful. We're powerless over those things. That is such a remarkably important message. And it reminded me that you certainly had control over who you chose to do the cover and it's come out amazingly well. I'm sorry, but people do judge a book by its cover. <laughs> I always um, think one of the most hilarious sayings, don't judge a book by its cover, because that's the first thing you do, right? That cover was designed by Luke Corsby from Blue Cork, and I could not love it more. But again, I briefed him in quite a specific way. I said I wanted a bush cabin. I wanted canola and I wanted mice and I didn't want cute mice like they appear in bay. I wanted nasty looking mice. And I can honestly say he delivered on all of those aspects. But he's a very talented cover designer, but a word product is only going to be as good as the effort that's put into it. Yes, and how much you share with the crown and the insights you give them in this case. Uh, And again, that comes down to what is within your power and what isn't. That's, I think, a message that all writers can benefit from being reminded about because it is such an uncertain journey. And perhaps we'll talk a little bit about your writing process with mentioned it briefly that it's been about two years that you've been working on it and let's perhaps talk about when you decided to self-publish or why you decided to self-publish. So I pitched to all the relevant publishers in Australia and I also pitched to a few in the UK and a few in the US. I was not successful. I made it to the commissioning editor twice the first time I was on the lounge with in my bank day pajamas with the Maggie Beard salted caramel ice cream for a few days. After the second rejection, I was not on the couch in my day pajamas with the Maggie Beer ice cream. And to quote you, Laura, to quote you back at yourself, the factor that separates those who publish in Australia and those who do not is resilience. There's probably about three factors, resilience, determination, and diligence. Because it's been said by someone, it's harder for someone to get published in Australia than it is to go to the Olympics. And I would agree with that summation. And I think it's also harder to get an agent than it is to get published in Australia. I'm a really determined person. I'm a finisher. If I'd start something, I'll finish it. And I decided to self-publish. And it's someone also said it's a bit like being the CEO of your own small company. And that is true. You have to 
manage all the different aspects of publishing. But there are people like yourself who you can subcontract a task out to. There are a lot of experts around. There are a lot of people in the publishing industry who will only feel happy to help you or to recommend someone who's suitable. And I think self-publishing today doesn't have the stigma, the negative stigma that it had years ago. You can self-publish and still end up with a very professional-looking work product. Correct. Um, And I think that the world would be infinitely poorer without some of the self-published books that are in it today. So I'm always cheering from the sidelines for an author who's willing to take the risk and self-publish. And I, I agree. And look, I think there is people who are not back by traditional publishers. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're poor writers or that they are lacking talent. J.K. Rowling was rejected, I think, 15 times. Matthew Riley was rejected. He self-published his, and he's obviously earned millions. His self-published book was picked up by an editor from HarperCollins and she then republished it and the rest is history. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are lacking in talent if you do not get published. Um, Often it's just people who don't persevere that don't end up published. I think that's really true and it's more likely to be or many times it can be a case of bad timing. You may be rejected by a publishing house because they've done something similar recently. Or you may be rejected because your story is a little bit controversial and makes the publishing team uncomfortable and they're not sure how it's going to go down with the public. There's thousands of reasons why you could be rejected and none of them mean that your book is not actually publishable. It just means that it didn't work for that particular team of people. That, that's exactly right. And I got a knockback for one of the traditional publishers because they said, no, we've got a crime book coming out this year and next year we don't need any more crime. Okay. <laughs> and that's a very it's, small window, right? One crime book a year. So, yeah. Yes. And I also, I, I listened to Shankari Chandran talk at the Blue Mountains Writers Festival And I heard about her past to publication. And I think the book, her most recent book, Chai Time in Cinema Gardens, which just won the Miles Franklin, that was her fourth manuscript. And certainly this, the second one, which was Barrier, she only got that published after rewriting the protagonist and making him have white skin. And look where she is now. Yes. It is a great story, and it's a reminder that as as tough as things can be for you, there's probably somebody out there who's facing even bigger challenges and not giving up on it. That's right. To talk a little bit more about the process, I know that you have a writing group. How did they help you on your journey? I can honestly say the two best things I did on my journey was A, to do online courses, and B, to join a writing group. I joined a writing group just after I finished my first draft and I circulated the first draft to my writing group and the feedback I got 
from them. They, on many occasions, they have saved me from myself when I needed to be saved. We, all four of them have different strengths. Mary is a real gun on craft. And she's very good at structure, at plot holes, at point of view. For example, the, in my prologue, I had this, I had it dark and she said, it's quarter to seven. It's not dark. Mm. Quarter to seven in the Riverina. What are you doing? And just things like that. She also had me sending Byrne back to the scene of his trauma unsupported. And she said, I don't think that's right. You really need to have trauma specialists looked at that. And it turned out that would not be a sensible course of action. Veronica is very good at character and relationships. She spotted, I don't have daughters, I have three sons. And she spotted, things that weren't right in the relationship between Vern and his daughter. She said "Here she arrives in Terranlin and then he leaves it to her own devices for three days with the, I can't say anymore because yeah, I don't yeah, want yeah. to <laughs> spoilers. So then I had to go and rewrite that section of the manuscript to have him supervising what she was doing with herself whilst in the country town. One of the other members of our group is an editor. She's very good at casting an eagle eye over the manuscript. And the fourth one is very good at big picture. And she said to me, Lynn, you make a promise to the reader in your first book. She said, I note that all the ends are tied up very neatly in this book. So that means that readers will be expecting in your second book to have a similar niche ending. Is that the promise that you really make? And yeah, that, that is, I needed to be told all of those things. And the feedback is given in a very respectful and constructive way. And if it is, then that's exactly how feedback should be given. It is. And it's invaluable to have a group like that who can give you an outsider's perspective on what you've done because as writers, we get so close to what we're doing. We think we've covered all the holes and everything and we know what we expect to be there. So sometimes we can't see it when we've actually just missed it. And then on that sort of same journey, I know that you mentioned that you shared with your writing group the copy edits that I did with you and that everybody use that as a learning experience. And I was wondering if you could share perhaps some of the things you yes. learned from that or that other people learned some of that. Yes, of course. Another good thing about being in a writing group is that you get to share your knowledge. Yeah. So I did share your report on the copy edit for my book with my writing group and they were really, they learned a lot from that report. So I just honed in on three major things that, that they took away from your report. The first one was, I didn't realize, but readers imprint on the first good character in a novel. Now, after the prologue, the first good character that I introduced was not Bird, was not the protagonist. It was his outsider, Bozik. So what I had to do was swap the Bring the scene where Blaine is in the rehab center. As you suggested, I made that chapter one. And then all the preceding material relating to Bozik investigating the disappearance, I relocated and wove that in to subsequent chapters. 
band that worked a lot, flowed a lot better. I also had huge slabs backstory. Like two chapters were just all backstory. And as you quite rightly pointed out, it slowed down the pacing of the book. So when I fragmented that, relocated it, and I wove it into the rest of the book. And fortunately, one of the characters in my book is the town gossip. And can I just say it's very useful having the device of the town gossip because if you don't know how to get in backstory, you just have the town gossip telling another character what the backstory is. That's great. I love that, yes. And the third thing was, and I wasn't aware of this, that a lot of the book was written in the passive voice, so object, verb, subject. An example of that was there was a gurgling sound instead of he heard a gurgling sound. And passive voice is not wrong, but it's strongly associated with academic writing, which is probably, you know, why a lot of the book was written in the passive voice because I was used to writing legal advices, but it's a lot wordier than the active voice. It slows down pacing and it also denies personal culpability. So it doesn't allow you to make the, that point of view character as blameworthy or as dropped into the action. Mm. I think you rewrote a lot of the material that was in the passive voice and it looked a whole lot better. There were lots of other observations, but I don't have time to go into them all. That's lovely feedback to hear. And it's really nice from an editor's perspective when somebody really takes on board what you're saying. And I do know I gave you quite a few examples, but you rewrote a lot of it yourself. What's next on your writing agenda, Lynn? Can you talk about um, it? Sure. So as I've touched on, legal cases are a very rich source of material for authors. The plot of the bait trap was derived from a British case. And the plot for my second book has been inspired by the Melissa Caddick saga that has a lot of Sydney grit and it relates to a Ponzi scheme operator who defrauds a group of investors, a lot of whom are family and friends, and disappears after being raided by the corporate regulator. And I was inspired to write to write a book about it's called affinity fraud. What is it that makes us want to hand over money or personal information to people who we don't know? And often people who are close to us or all people who are close to us. Um and that that idea was spawned from a weekend away I had with my uni friends. At, we were celebrating 30 years post-uni. And I fessed up and said I had recently fallen prey to the WhatsApp scan where a person impersonating my son babled me to hand over my credit card details. And fortunately, I acted really quickly and screamed up to the Combank and asked them to stop the two transactions. That was sheer luck, and it was just also acting quickly. But then one by one, every person in the room fessed up to being preyed on by scammers. And I'm talking about highly educated, very savvy people who are not backward 
in rebuffing predatory people. And I got thinking, if all of you, bar one, have been preyed on by scammers, I need to write a book about this. I need to write a book about what is it that makes us hand over money and personal information to people we don't know and how well do we know the people who are closest to us. Two very important questions. Often the answers in both cases will make us a little uncomfortable, I think. Exactly, yeah. Lynn, thank you very much. It's been a great chat. Can you tell readers where they can find you in the online world? Sure. So you can find me on my website at lynnjohnsonauthor.com or on socials. You can find me on Instagram at lynn underscore johnson underscore author and also at Facebook at lynnjohnson hyphen author. Wonderful. Congratulations again on finishing and publishing your first novel. It's really thought-provoking and an insightful look into Australian culture. I'm sure it's going to be very well-received and possibly a little bit controversial, which is always a good thing. The paperback is available from Amazon and from Lynn's website if anyone is looking for it. And the ebook is widely available through all regular ebook retailers. Thanks again, Lynn. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website and you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening, have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.